listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Labor, executive editor of Louisiana Life magazine. It's our Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's our Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress tree. The year 2023 was, um, I guess, among many anniversaries, but a very tragic anniversary because it was in the, on June 24th of uh, 1973 that a real tragedy happened, uh, a fire at a, uh, a lounge in, in the French Quarter in which 32 people ultimately died and it uh, became a, a national story. It also became a, a story not just of personal tragedy, but of a lot of I guess philosophical angle to it, and that, and that most of the uh, the victims, I imagine, perhaps all of them, uh, were gay. That it was a uh, um, a gay bar, and so that raised a lot of questions in terms of the way people react. Anyway, it's a tragic and fascinating story. My guess is uh, Roy Anderson. Uh, Roy specializes. He's done several documentaries, and he's he specializes in documentaries on local tragedies. Uh, uh, we fed him on this podcast one time talking about the uh, the Howard Johnson's fire uh, or, or, or the Ralston fire and, and, and the, the Howard Johnson sniper incident. There was the, the Grain Center explosion and there were several, uh, there was the Easter uh, bus crash. And at first, you know, why do you want to talk about these tragedies? But, but, but doing this, I find to be a good exercise because it, it reminds you of what happened. And you read up and you read about the circumstances and you read about what needs to be done and and uh, and what you learn from them and you, uh, and you and you really learn a lot and so i think it's a good service that you do these documentaries anyway hi rod hey errol thanks for having me okay so let's begin by telling us telling us what happened that afternoon um june 24th 1973. okay it, it was on a sunday and the bar was packed. They had a, a beer special. They called it a beer bust, where the, the beer was really cheap. Uh, and it was it was jam-packed. There was a church, the MCC Church, the Metropolitan Community Church. Members of that church were there that evening as a fundraiser. They were planning a fundraiser for the Crippled Children's Hospital, which now is called just the, the Children's Hospital in Uptown. And there was a fellow who came in there, a, a gay man who was in the bathroom. He was like a peeping Tom. He was causing problems in there. There was like a hole in the, in one of the stalls of the bathroom and he was causing problems in there. Another gentleman in the bar got tired of him, Michael Scarborough. They got in a fist fight. Michael Scarborough broke this guy's jaw. His name, the, the person we're talking about is Roger Nunez. And as Roger's is being lifted up and being kicked out of the bar he he proclaims i'm going to burn this effing place to the ground and this is shortly before eight o'clock maybe 7 40 say it's 7 50 and he leaves and within 10 minutes the 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 lounge is on fire they found a an empty can of lighter fluid 
at the base of the of the stairwell that leads up to the upstairs lounge. Uh, and they were they were trapped. They couldn't get out. And actually, the person whoever did it, then the, he was buzzing. He was buzzing the the door. He was that evil. He he lit the fire at the base of the stairs and started buzzing the door, the upstairs lounge fire, for them to open it. And when they opened it, a backdraft came in, and it was uh, it was horrible. It was just uh, they were burned alive, and they could not escape because there were burglar bars on the windows. A lot of people did escape, roughly 20, they estimated. Buddy Rasmussen, the bartender, led about 20 people to safety through the theater. There was, a, there was actually a theater in the lounge as well. It was a very interesting place. Um, but the majority of them could not get out because of the, uh, because of the burglar bars. And as Buddy, uh, as Buddy helped the patrons get out through the back door, through his training in the military, he latched the fire escape door closed, which unintentionally left the remaining patrons in there who were trapped. They, they were trapped. They couldn't get out. So that's what happened. And there was no arrest. Um, Roger Nunez was questioned by the NOPD, but he was never arrested, uh, which, which is very, uh, it's, a, it's an injustice. About a year later, he committed suicide. He took a drug overdose. He, he got married. He actually married a, a lady and, and committed suicide, took a, dr a drug overdose in New Orleans East. That's, so it's- his, his name was Roger Nunez, N-U-N-E-Z, is that what was in it? But let's establish a couple of things. First of all, the Metropolitan Community Church, this was a church that catered to a gay clientele. Uh, it was a Christian church, and, and uh, which is unusual because there weren't many Christian churches at the time that were catering to like I mean, that were openly catering to a gay clientele, and so it was a big event within that community. Did they have some kind of service there that day? That day, I mean, they did have. Well, the that day they were meeting. Members of the of the MCC were meeting to plan like a fundraiser for the, the crippled children's hospital. So there were a lot of people there um, from that church and, and they would, they would be there a lot. They, that was one of their main hangout spots, the upstairs lounge. So the upstairs lounge not only served as a, as a bar as you and I know it, but it was also a theater and it was also like a religious congregation there. Sometimes they would hold services. That's the, the MCC church there. <laughs> Now, this building still exists. Uh, it's on Charter Street. It's on Iberville and Charters. And for many years, it's been at, at least at the ground level. It's known as the Jiminy Bar and Restaurant, whatever it is. It's uh, Jiminy with a, with a, with a, with a J. Uh, and if you look at this website, it looks like a really happy place to be. Uh, the second level, with that's like administrative offices for the Jiminy. And then the third level is where the disaster was, and uh, there's nothing there now. Is that correct? There's nothing there. As as I went up there in 2013 and and went up to the uh, the second and the third floor, that third floor was at that time in 1973 was a flop house, and there had a lot of people who would who would rent rooms there. But when I visited the the that area, it was just run down. It was. You could still see the rooms, but it was uninhabited and 
and, and nothing was going on. It looks like it was frozen in time. And that second floor is where the the the, uh, the gym and East stores all there, you know, the beers and, and all that stuff. And there are apartments in there as well. It's it's a big maze. It's it's very uh, and you could still see, which is really scary. You could still see charring on the walls. If you go up on that second floor, the the owner of the bar let me in there years ago and I got to see it. But it's, it's just uh, it's scary to see that. Um, and something also ironic is that that fire, the main suspect, Roger Nunez, um, gosh, hundreds of years ago in 1788, you had the great fire that that burned down the French Quarter and it occurred in on the same street, like on Charters and Iberville, on Iberville. And that was uh, that started at the home of uh, Nunez. So that that's kind of ironic. You had those those two the same name and the same and the fire. Okay. Now I know that wasn't an arrest and so therefore there wasn't a conviction, but isn't the evidence fairly strong that he did it? First of all, with him saying, I'm gonna burn this place down, that might have been a hint too. But didn't he supposedly in the time the days that followed, didn't he supposedly tell a few people that he did it? Yeah, there's a lot of circle circumstantial evidence pointing to him. He um he befriended a nun and really confided in her and he he confessed to her that he did it and on other occasions he would get drunk in front of his friends and and confess and then when he would sober up he would deny it so gosh it's still an unsolved case and the case could have been solved if one of those people who he confessed to would would have went to the NOPD and reported that the case would have been solved if they would have found fingerprints on that can of lighter fluid that was found at the base of the stairwell it could have been solved and there was a he the the can of lighter fluid was bought at the Walgreens which is just half a block down it's still there that Walgreens and there was a lady who remembers a fellow a young fellow buying of can of lighter fluid at that time, but they did a police lineup and they included Roger Nunez in that lineup. And that lady, that the cashier who who served that person could not identify Roger Nunez. So had she identified him, uh, the case would have been solved, but none of that happened. So that still poses the question, uh, did he do it or not? It's still like a question mark. <laughs> but there's no indication of anybody else who could have been a, a suspect that, that would well, there was a, another fellow in the bar earlier that, that evening who got kicked out of the bar, too. He was uh, collecting, like, uh, beer bottles or glasses and, and trying to cash them in for kind of like what happens at Pat O'Brien's when people leave their hurricane glasses on the table. If you if you pick up a, a one of those glasses and turn it in, the, the bartenders are going to give you money for it. Same thing was happening there. And this fellow got kicked out. So he was a suspect, but they later found out that he was, he hired, he, he was, he was with another, like uh, a hustler that night. The hustler turned him in and said, no, that this could not have happened because he was, he was with me. So that cleared him, you know, but even in my documentary, 
there was a fellow who's who was caught in a traffic jam right in front of where the uh the fire was happening he saw it he saw it with his children they were coming back from a harlem globetrotters event with his young children they're right in the middle of they they stopped right at that corner and he, he watched them cooking alive and he saw he saw two people two he said two people walking out and one of them said that i'll teach the mother effers and and they walked out but he said two so could there have been uh could two people team up to do it i don't know you know could it's it's still up in the air but why was nunez kicked out was it because he said he was in, he was in a fight he was in a fight well he got in a fist fight he was a peeping tom he was in the the the, the bathroom sitting around watching people there was like a hole in a partition and he was spying on people in, in the restroom. He was agitating a lot of folks. And then a fellow by the name of Michael Scarborough got tired of it and they got in a fist fight. There was a huge fist fight in a bar and Michael Scarborough broke Roger Nunez's jaw and he hit the ground. And then he said, Hey, I'm going to burn this effing place to the ground as they're kicking him out. Like the bartender, Buddy Raspy, kicked him out. So um, he seems to be the number one suspect to me. The other one that I thought might have been the other fella who was carrying the, the bottles, trying to turn him in, they, they kicked him out. But it later cleared that he was with somebody else at that time. No, in some accounts I've seen, Nunes has been described as being gay also, was he? Yes, he, yes, Nunes, Roger Nunes was gay. Okay. And that's, that's what makes me think like it's been going on this, this happened in 73 and the country, when I did the documentary in 2013, the country didn't know, know anything about it. Like uh, uh, I was getting calls from all over, all over the world. We never heard about this. What's going on here? Uh, uh, I even got a call from Princeton University and they invited me on per diem to show the documentary there, but it was a gay on gay crime. I mean, it's still unsolved, but it was a gay on gay crime. So it just it just didn't mesh with the with the narrative at that time. It wasn't a hate crime as you and me think about it today, because you know how that's defined. But because of that, it's just forgotten. And then when you know I did that film in 2013, like wow, this is a big piece of LGBT history that we never heard about. What what the heck? You know, uh, let's why did why were we not exposed to this? So that's that's my feelings about it what was the uh, famous event that happened in new york at, with greenwich village uh, stonewall that it, um uh, it was like a bar it was like a gay bar over there and it, i don't remember if it was a fire or right but anyway something bad happened but that that really galvanized the gay community in the in the greenwich village area and, and this kind of reminds me of it do, do, do you recall that yeah, the Stonewall riots. Uh, it was like protests by the gay community, and it was a police raid actually on a bar, and uh, that really galvanized them and and brought the gay community together and got them really strong. And a lot of folks are trying to, or a lot of po folks believe that the the upstairs lounge fire. That's when things turned in New Orleans. The LGBT. We they all got together and and they were very strong, but 
according to Johnny Towns, and he interviewed firsthand interviews with with a lot of the people who were at the bar in the in the 80s. Johnny Towns, and he says that that you no know, that the upstairs lounge fire didn't galvanize the LGBT community. It, it happened later with Anita Bryant in the in the late 70s when she came over here. I don't know if you remember her. She would she was on those orange juice commercials. And she was I think she was Miss America. But she got she was very anti-gay and she was very uh, you know a biblical lady and she came over here for something and they like they it was kind of like the stonewall they all the, the gay community here really rallied against her but you didn't have that the that type of energy in 73 with the upstairs lounge fire you did have people coming in the gay community for like uh, reverend troy perry came from California there, there was a group but you didn't have that intensity like you in the later 70s when uh, Anita Bryant came here well Anita, Anita Bryant I remember she's a very popular character yeah I think she was a former Miss America beautiful woman and she sang and danced and she was doing those commercials for Florida Orange Juice and then she made I don't remember the exact comment it was an anti-gay comment and that really it ruined her career I mean uh, she was just out of it after that you never heard from her again um, so the, um, um, for the actual incident, once it started in the fires, one of the problems was that it was hard for people to get out because things were just blocked. So people were trapped in there. People were trapped there. The, the, the exit, the, the, the fire escape door was behind the theater. It was kind of hard to find. Uh, a lot of the materials inside the bar also were very highly flammable i mean it was very elaborately decorated the upstairs lounge and everything just went ablaze and the nop the new orleans the city of new orleans with their inspections i think they dropped the ball big time because you had burglar bars on the window you had highly flammable material why did the inspectors from the city of New Orleans, why they just, I think it should have been closed, it been shut down. I'm thinking, because I've done all these documentaries and I wrote a book on all these tragedies, I'm thinking about the Pan Am Flight 759 crash, which the city of New Orleans owns the airport, but there was a wind shear detector on that, on that east-west runway that wasn't working. It was broken. It was like damaged by vandals and the city of New Orleans never repaired. It was it was just sitting there for close to a year. So negligence does lead to these catast catastrophes, uh, unfortunately. I think, as I recall, the Pan Am, which was a huge disaster, was the first time that people heard of one year. The first time it was kind of brought forward, but people didn't know how to respond to it. <clears throat> and it was what, a couple of years later in Dallas. When there was a crash that went down, which is also a wind shear. And then that was the one that really just touched the button, okay? Uh, because people who heard about New Orleans, but once it happened in Dallas, then they started making wind shear detectors and devices, that, you know, where pilots can see if there's wind shear in the area. Um, right, exactly. I mean, a lot of folks say that, oh, because of the Pan Am Flight 759 crash, now they have wind shear detectors and Doppler radar. No, there was, there was wind shear detectors at that time, and there was... They were on that runway like that day, but one of them was like the, it was broken. So uh, 
it did advance the push for these uh, wind shoot detectors and also the uh, Doppler radar, which is now on all the jets right now when you're flying. Now, the, uh, at the time, people didn't really respond to this. I mean, um, and there was a lot of controversies that churches wouldn't have services for the victims. Um, and there was one, was an Episcopal minister or somebody who do, who did have a prayer service and he was highly criticized for it. Uh, I think a, a Unitarian church did have a service and the, the Unitarian bishop came in and, uh, and, and took a stand, but, 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 but the, the church really didn't quite know how to deal with it. Uh, neither did the city, that the city really, you know, the kind of thing, well, well Mayor Mitch Landrieu, certainly by any standards was a, a social liberal. I think he was out of town by the, when this happened. And I thought an article when the, when he came back and he was asked about it, he just talked about it in terms of, um, you know, we regret it, but, but but they never like like made a really big statement about it. The one thing I noticed in the um, with the Archbishop of uh, Archbishop Hannon at the time, who was a very popular Archbishop. I mean, he was a a, a very beloved figure, figure, and he barely made a statement about that either. Um, the um, the he mentioned something about you know, human rights and that sort of thing, but never made a strong statement. In this paragraph I found, um, because Gregory Amon, who's been the Archbishop since then, um, in 2013, at the time of the 40th anniversary of the fire, uh, Gregory Amon issued a statement of regret that his predecessor, Archbishop Philip Hannon, and the local church leadership ignored the arson attack. Eamon wrote to Time Magazine that quoting, in retrospect, if we did not release a statement, we should have to be in solidarity with the victims and their families. The church does not condone violence and hatred. If we do not extend our care and, con and condolences, I deeply apologize. Um, so good for him for at least taking a stand. I mean, altering the step. And uh, he, he's having to do a lot of things. I mean, Archbishop around the I guess around the world are having to do a lot of that kind of thing about trying to regret things from the past and trying to write everything. But at least people are becoming sensitive on these kind of things and, uh, and uh, on, on how to work them. So, um, have, you, yeah. have you, in all your research, have you talked to any people who were in there that day, any of the victims or, or, or people, not the victims, any of the survivors? Yeah, I'd like to jump back briefly about the uh, the the catholic and and all that and and how they they didn't uh they didn't honor the victims and all there were like three catholic priests and they were photographed blessing the bodies as the body bags were being taken out uh and as far as like the rumors about those were like strictly rumors that the catholics refused burials for the victims i mean that's according to uh Robert Fiesler's book Tinderbox, which is very highly acclaimed, and he he really he really uh, researched it extensively. Uh, yeah, I mean Archbishop Hannon did make a statement uh, expressing sympathy for the victims, but it was a little bit late. It was like in July. This happened in June, but he did make a statement. 
uh, contrary to, to our political figures at the time, uh, the mayor and the governor made, had made no statements of public sympathy. So, uh, but uh, going back to your question, why did I did I speak to any members who were there at that time? Yeah, I did, and a lot of them did not want to speak in front of the camera. They were very shook up, which I understand. Uh, a lot of them had religious experiences. Some of them uh, found religion after that. The the survivors. Uh, it was just uh, something that they don't want to remember. Something that they don't want to discuss and understand that. I'm working on this with a with memory is most in your mind from from working on this. My memory is just sadness. Like, and I'm I'm watching. I'm looking at a lot of these photos, these these images. A lot of a lot of this stuff. Uh, these pictures that I've seen of the deceased, uh, the public has never seen, and it just uh, it's it's just sad. And and how they were not respected or treated. Had this fire occurred at Galatoire's, I think there would have been an arrest. I think the the guy got in the you know the guy got in the fist fight and threatened to burn the place to the ground. He would have been arrested, but there was no arrest. So to this day, everyone is very frustrated about this. Uh, I'm left with I'm frustrated. I'm I'm angry that nothing justice was not served, and uh, and also saddened too. But times have changed for the better. I mean, in 1974, just a year later, we became the first state to make it mandatory to have sprinkler systems and in buildings, and you don't have burglar bars on on windows anymore at bars. So they're they're more uh, acute to to preventing something like that ha from happening again. Yeah, I guess that's the best you can hope for, that one that people will become more sensitive to things and to other people, and at the same time, you can get reforms and, 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 and do things better. So anyway, well, thank you for doing this uh, documentary. It's important, and it's going to forever be something that people can look at and be reminded about um, what happened. And so I, I appreciate that. Now. Uh, I know for the anniversary celebration in, in, in June that you had some events where people were talking. If somebody, if, if that's, if, is it possible for somebody to, to order your video or is it on Amazon or somewhere or? No, it's not on Amazon, but my book is, New Orleans Disasters uh, is, is on Amazon. Um, but if you want to get a copy of my documentary, that was the first documentary that was the first film ever produced about this tragedy. Shortly after that, there was a couple of more documentaries that were made, one by ABC News, but yeah, that's that's the original. If you'd like to get a copy of that, you can, I'm on Facebook, Roy Anderson, and also an easy way is just, if you go on Facebook, the Upstairs Lounge Fire, it's called, just look it up and that's the website, face, uh, facebook.com slash Upstairs Lounge Fire. Uh, I can definitely get you a copy of that documentary. I'm working on getting it streamed, uh, but but I will definitely get a copy to you, or you can stream it. I could send you a private link to watch the documentary. Okay. 
Okay, but your book is is on Amazon. It's called New Orleans Disasters. Are you Royd R O Y D Anderson? Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, the book's New Orleans Disasters: First-hand accounts of Crescent City tragedy. It's it's first-hand accounts. You have uh, interviews with witnesses, uh, family members. Uh, it's it's a great book. Now, there have been big fires in New Orleans history. I think I thought I thought it's subscribed as the biggest fire in terms of the number of victims uh, in New Orleans history. Uh, I know there was a big fire, the, the one that started with at the cathedral in 1788 or something. That was probably the biggest in terms of of area, in terms of, of area uh, uh, that was destroyed. But I don't know if it had that many victims. But in terms of victims, this was the biggest um, the biggest event. So. Well, yeah, back at that time in 1788, they only recorded uh, property damage. So we, we really don't know how many people died in that fire. But the 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 recorded history of New Orleans as far as fatalities, the upstairs lounge fire is number one. Yeah. Yeah, well, at least in 1788, I mean, people weren't contained anywhere. <laughs> I mean, could, you know, the, the, there were places to run to, but, but they couldn't do it. What's next? Anything else you're looking at? Well, I'm in the process of working on uh, the Howard Johnson sniper. Uh, that was a, a big, I remember that as a child. Uh, and I'm editing and trying to get that put together. Uh, that's that's what I'm working on right now, the Howard Johnson sniper incident, which was very close to the upstairs lounge fire uh, just months before in the same year, 73. In, in only a few weeks after the, uh, the Ralston fire. They all, yeah, they were all together. That was uh, yeah. something else. Yeah. Okay. Roy, thank you very much. And thank you for doing this. Thank you, Errol. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.